Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history. Like spiders, skateboards and burgers. And we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of teeth, yes teeth, is in fact all about identity in the Viking Age. It's all about Vikings sawing their teeth to make little grooves. Or that the history of bones, yes, skeletons and things like that, all very creepy, is in fact all about the English Reformation. The man sitting opposite me who will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Are you well? I'm very well, thank you. I'm looking forward to doing this one. This is another episode in our special series of homeschooling for kids. In each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. And we're going to prove that it does. And today, you won't believe this, we are doing something James suggested last week. And I said, you can't possibly do that. He said, yes, 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 you can. We're doing the history of slobbering. (laughs) (laughs) It it sounds odd, but this is inspired... (laughs) by something that my 10-year-old daughter was doing for her history lessons. And I'd just like to say thank you to the wonderful, the terrific uh, Mr Pidwell uh, for all his inspiration about this. So this, Mr Pidwell, this is specially for you. This is all about, well, we'll, you'll have to wait and find out. But first, we will do a brainstorm on slobbering. So how do you talk? How do you write a history of slobbering? Which is basically the excess production of saliva so it's it's spittle coming out of your mouth if you've ever seen the film Beethoven Beethoven that enormous St Bernard dog uh, (laughs) and the slobber coming out of its mouth and when it shakes its head the slobber goes absolutely everywhere you know exactly what we're talking about so there we are it is the excess production of saliva. It's about uncouth table manners. It's about people who don't really know the proper way to eat. They gorge, they feast. It's about grotesqueness. And then it's about the development of refinement and manners and eating nicely and not slobbering. 
and wiping wiping your chin yes. when you're eating. And so it's very much linked with the history of food. It's linked with the history of manners. Uh, to a certain extent, it's it's linked with the history of illness as well and disease. It is. Uh, mental illness as well. I was looking at the different symptoms of mental illness and how that is... Uh, is great is described at times throughout history smiling was often one you know the the smile was something that was associated with the mentally unwell as is dribbling and spitting and foaming at the mouth which of course connects us to rabies uh, which historically was known as hydrophobia in other words the fear of water and one of the symptoms later on when it sets in is the inability to swallow properly and then the overproduction of saliva so that people are basically almost frothing at the mouth in this way or it's connected to drooling of teething babies so ba ah. babies whose teeth are coming through and in the 16th and 17th century when physicians or doctors didn't understand quite how the body worked they saw teething as a disease and they saw they, they would anoint the gums of young children with the, get, did you know, with the brains of a hare or a rabbit. Wow. This would, this would assist teething. Uh, I can't imagine any uh, parenting guide today worth its salt that would get away with a little bit. If your child is teething, all you need to do is dash out the brains of a rabbit, put it, <laughs> rub it into an ointment and then just pop it on the gums instead of Bongella. Can you imagine that? Or the history, of, the history of slobbering or drooling is about appreciating things. So it's drooling over, say, a particularly choice piece of cake. Or it's about the history of adolescence. Teenage boys drooling over girls. <laughs> but, but really, really, the whole history of slobbering for us is a way of thinking about the history of James VI and I the first of the Stuart monarchs who sat on the English throne. He's titled James VI and I because he was monarch of Scotland, where he was the sixth King James. At the same time, he was the King of England, James the James I of England in 1603, which saw the union of those two crowns. Now, Sam, you're going to tell us how we get to James VI and I from slobbering. But we're all doing the history of slobbering because it's linked with James I and there's a fantastic description of him by someone called Anthony Weldon, who is a 17th century courtier and a politician. And this is what he had to say about his king. He was of a middle stature, more corpulent through his clothes and in his body, yet fat enough, his clothes ever being made large and easy, the doublets quilted for stiletto-proof. He was naturally of a timorous disposition, his eyes large, ever rolling after any stranger that came in his presence. His beard was very thin, his tongue too large for his mouth, which made him drink very uncomely, as if eating his drink, which came out of the cup at each side of his mouth. His skin was as soft as taffeta sarsant, like thin silk, which felt so because he never washed his hands, only rubbed his finger ends slightly with the wet end of a napkin. His legs were very weak, having had, as was thought, some foul play in his youth, 
That weakness made him ever leaning on other men's shoulders. His walk was ever circular. His fingers ever in that walk, fiddling about with his codpiece. He was very liberal of what he had not in his own grip, and would rather part with a hundred pounds he never had in his keeping, at one twenty shilling piece within his own custody. A very wise man was wont to say that he believed him the wisest fool in Christendom, meaning him wise in small things, but a fool in weighty affairs. Well, that is some serious description of a king. This is from someone called Sir Anthony Weldon, as I said, and he hated the Scots, and that's why he wrote this abusive pamphlet. Um, and the thing that really catches my eyes there was his description of why we're doing it with slobbering was that he had this very thin beard, his tongue too large for his mouth, which made him drink very uncomely, as if eating his drink. Such powerful words, James. They are, definitely. And one of the reasons that we chose to do this is because historians writing modern histories of James the Sixth and First still go back to Anthony Weldon's writing. And... What we need to understand is that Weldon had produced an abusive pamphlet about the Scots, which he published in 1617. And before that, he'd been knighted by James. Um, and so, but James, being a Scot himself, was offended by this. And he dismissed Weldon from his court position. And Weldon then gets his revenge by writing this really acidic attack on James. And what's interesting is that this attack was not actually published until after Weldon's death. It was in fact published one year after the removal of the Stuart monarchy in England with the execution of King Charles I in 1649. And what's significant about it is the way in which it colours future generations of historians. And you can see it in a book called 1066 and all that, which is a sort of humorous take on the history of England. And in that book, where they describe in very humorous way, James I, they have him as James I slobbered at the mouth and had favourites. He was thus a bad king. Um, so we don't really need to take Anthony Weldon at face value. And I could give you a completely different view from the times of James as king. Now listen to this. This is an extract from de Fontenay, who was the envoy to James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots. And it was written in 1584 when James was 18 years. To tell you frankly what I've heard about him, he is for his age the premier prince who has ever lived. He has three qualities of the soul in perfection. He apprehends and understands everything. He judges reasonably. He carries much in his memory and for a long time. In his questions, he is lively and perceptive and sound in his answers. In any matter which is being debated, be it religion or any other thing, he believes and maintains what seems to be to be to him to be true and just he is learned in many tongues sciences and affairs of state more so i dare say than any others in his realm in brief 
He has a marvellous mind filled with virtuous grandeur and a good opinion of himself. So in other words, we have a very different and positive viewpoint here. And the important point for you to take away here is how you reconcile opposing views in the past that people have said about historical figures. And also the importance of the way in which future generations use those views as a way of looking at the character of this monarch. Now, what I'd like to do is to go beyond this and to tell you four important things that you need to know when thinking about James the Sixth and First. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You need to see him as an experienced and intellectual king. So this is somebody who ruled for a long time in Scotland before he became king of England. So in 1603, he's been on the throne for quite a long time, since 1567, when he's a young child. And he's had an extraordinary education. He's been brought up superbly educated, Greek, Latin, history, composition, rhetoric, um, theology. So he's very, very schooled, very, very learned. He also learns his trade of kingcraft throughout the 1580s and 1590s and has very difficult problems with the Kirk or the Scottish Church and particularly dealing with the extreme Presbyterian wing of the church. He's also sought during this period to re-establish the prestige of monarchy and to combat Parliament. And the other important thing to, to know about him is that he is a scholar king. He's somebody who is interested in ideas. He engages in the European debate about the true nature of kinship. And he publishes two books about this. The True Law of Free Monarchies in 1598 and Basilican Doran in 1599, where he makes, 1599, where he makes a contribution to the argument for the divine right of kingship. He also writes a book about witchcraft in 1597, which is a, his belief in witchcraft with undertones of scepticism about individual women who are accused of witchcraft. So he is an intellectual. When he comes to the throne in 1603, he's a very experienced king. He's not this drooling simpleton with uncouth manners. 
He's a learned, scholarly and very experienced man. But once he's in England, there are several things that I think that are important to know about him. One is in terms of finances. He was extravagant where Elizabeth I had been very careful with money, very frugal. He handed out titles, offices and pensions with a trowel. This made him popular in the short term, but it actually, in the long term, increased the financial problems of the Crown. And he gets into trouble with Parliament about this and it leads to various disputes. The other thing that's important to know about him is his relationship with royal favourites. And there are two people in particular here. Robert Carr, who he promotes to be Viscount Rochester and the Earl of Somerset, and he falls in a, a plot or a, a sort of a, a scandal um, uh, very soon. And also George Villiers, who is somebody who comes almost from nothing and he's he becomes... The king becomes infatuated with him. He makes him an earl in 1617, a marquis in 1618, and the Duke of Buckingham in 1623. And he becomes a very, very unpopular figure within the Jacobean period. Now, the final thing that I'm going to leave you with is this idea of his belief in the divine right of kings. In other words, that he was God born for the role and because God had chosen before he was birth before he was born that he would be king he was not subject to the will of the people or the aristocracy or parliament and what's interesting about James is that he is one of the first people one of the first monarchs to contribute to this theory of divine monarchy and I just want to read you out an extract from James I on monarchy that was published in 1610 when he was aged 44. The state of monarchy is the supremest thing upon earth, for kings are not only God's lieutenants upon earth and sit upon God's throne, but even by God himself they are called gods. There be three principal comparisons that illustrate the state of monarchy. One, taken out of the word of God, and the two other out of the grounds of policy and philosophy. In the scriptures, so in other words in the Bible, kings are called gods, and so their power after a certain relation compared to the divine power. Kings are also compared to fathers of the families, for a king is truly the politic father of his people. And lastly, kings are compared to the head of this microcosm of the body of man. I conclude then this point touching the power of kings with this axiom of divinity, that as to dispute what God may do is blasphemy. So it is sedition in subjects to dispute what a king may do in the height of his power. But just kings will ever be willing to declare what they will do if they will not incur the curse of God. I will not be content that my power be disputed upon, but I shall ever be willing to make the reason appear of all my doings and rule my actions according to my laws. In other words, what he's saying here is that it was God 
who set him up as the supreme power, as the monarch, and that it is blasphemous, so it is blasphemous to God if you challenge the king's power like this. And I think, Sam, that you're going to say a little bit about how this goes down in Parliament and how it impacts upon James's relationship with the House of Commons during this period. Uh, that's right. And the, James's relationship with Parliament is one of the most interesting things about his career. And it's it's so important, not only for how James lived and ruled, but also for what happens to his son, Charles I, because what follows this all is the um, English Civil War. So James believes that his power comes from God and it is a superior power to that of Parliament, whereas Parliament believes that it's more of a a contract, essentially, the relationship between Parliament and their king. And they certainly think that their views should be taken into account. There's a key moment when they do get on with each other and they do cooperate and work things out. And that is in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot in November 1605. But that was not normal for the relationship between James and Parliament. And actually, it was more characterised by mutual incomprehension. Um, rather than actual loathing, I think. Um, there's a key moment in July 1604 when James gets very cross with Parliament for not agreeing to his demands. And he prorogues Parliament. He brings to an end a, par a parliamentary session. And he says, I will not thank where I feel no thanks due. I am not of such a stock as to praise fools. You see how many things you did not well. I wish you would make use of your liberty with more modesty in time to come. So those are the words of a very angry man. And this very angry relationship does continue, but primarily for two reasons. First uh, is because of inflation, and that's when the economy affects things. So a loaf of bread might cost three pence one year and then maybe 30 pence the next year. So prices are going up. And at the same time, James is spending lavishly on his court. And this means that the relationship with Parliament does continue to be very bad indeed. There are attempts to change it by the Earl of Salisbury. He's treasurer and he tries to get James to agree to something called the Great Contract, but it fails. And again, um, James is, is furious. Your greatest error, he says, has been that you ever expected to draw honey out of gall. Um, gall, in that respect, being something very bitter. The similar pattern of conflict with Parliament continues with something known as the Adled Parliament of 1614. It was so called because it lasted only nine weeks. It managed to achieve nothing at all. And when that ends, James rules without a Parliament at all for nine years, more than nine years, nine years and five months until 1621. And then forces start overtaking him. There's a conflict on the continent. He wants to raise money to help his son-in-law with a war. And to do that, he needs the help of Parliament. So he brings back Parliament. They do grant him some money, but at the same time, they start trying to influence other aspects of his life. Particularly, they try and influence the decision of um, James as to who his son might marry. And Parliament wants his son Charles to marry a Protestant wife rather than the Spanish Roman Catholic wife 
that he has in mind. And again, it ends with James dissolving Parliament on the, second, on the 6th of January, 1622. So we've got this enduring conflict, usually over starting over money, over issues to do with money, but then moving on to much more significant issues about religion and about the future of the kingdom and whether his son is going to marry a Protestant or a Catholic. It's absolutely fascinating. And what's important is we all know that his son, Charles I, had such problems with Parliament. Um, Cromwell ended up chopping off his head during the English Civil War. And so the historical question is, did Charles inherit those problems, the problems in the relationship between the king and his parliament, or should they be seen as completely separate? It's a good conundrum and one to think on, James. Oh, that's a good that's a good question. I remember writing that as an undergraduate at university myself. Now, here is a take home task for you. If you don't have the the energy to write such an essay, what I suggest you do is create a timeline of the life and reign of James the Sixth and First. This is something that historians always do when you're trying to get a sense of the main important events within a period, you have a list of dates and then you have a list of things that you're interested in. And this allows you to look at the development of events and history during a particular period. So you might, for example, start your timeline on the 19th of June, 1566, when James was born at Edinburgh Castle. And then you might end on the 27th of March, 1625, when James the sixth and first died and was succeeded by his son, Charles the first, and all the things in between, including one of his great contributions to England, which was the authorised King James's version of the Bible, uh, which was published in 1611 and was to become the standard text for more than 250 years. So there we are. There's James the sixth and first. It's uh, such a wonderful example of someone being tarred, tarred for history, and I think it's very unfair. Um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to that. Do please check us out at historiesoftheunexpected.com and find us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Come and make friends with us and do get in touch. And um, we'll be here along with some new stuff soon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.